morning, everyone. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. I occasionally get to lead our worship and song as well. Glad that you're here with us this morning. Pray God's blessing on you. We are continuing our series in 2 Corinthians. We are near the end. We're in chapter 13, the final chapter. There's one more message after today. And we'll, uh, we'll transition to uh, a few other topics and then our Advent series. And then we're looking to start Exodus starting next year. So, uh, we are a church that is formed by the Word of God, built on the Word of God. And uh, God Himself speaks to us through His Word. He's a glorious God. Uh, he's, he's better than you could ever imagine. And He's so good that He actually cares about us and wants us to know Him. So he's given us his word, and he speaks to it in the power of the Holy Spirit in real ways that affect our minds, certainly inform our minds, but also transform our minds, transform our hearts and our lives. And so that's why we do this, uh, because this is who he is, this is what he's called us to do. And we are making our way through this book. I trust we're enjoying the wonderful truths that are here. So we'll be in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And to start off with a story, uh, Christian businessman and author John Beckett shares the following story about tough love. That's the title of today's message, Tough Love. He says, I was in a dental chair being prepped for the replacement of a filling. Just as my mouth was filled with dental hardware so I could only mumble, the dental technician said out of the blue, you're Mr. Beckett, aren't you? I grunted assent. Well, I want to thank you for firing my husband. I was stuck. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. I could only listen to the ensuing monologue. It happened ten years ago, she said. A few days after your company hired my husband, he was notified he failed a drug test. You may not recall, she continued, but you called him into your office before he left. You said, I realize I don't have a choice but to terminate you, but I want to tell you something. You're at a crossroads. You keep going the way you are, and the results are very predictable. Well, you can take this as a wake-up call. You can decide you're going to turn your life around. I'm sure the technician couldn't see the beads of perspiration on my forehead under all the paraphernalia as she continued. I want you to know my husband took your advice. Today he's a good father, a good husband, and he has a fine job. Thank you for firing my husband. He goes on to say, I wish I could say that all terminations have turned out this way. Regardless of the outcome, however, we must be prepared to take action when a situation can't be brought around. In a strange way, it's an aspect of our care for people. Today we're going to see in this passage that genuine Christian leadership and love involves practicing tough love. Tough love, we're going to see in this section, First, it exposes persistent phoniness. And secondly, it sacrifices to promote genuine success. And you and I, as followers of Christ, whether we're leaders or not, are called to this biblical tough love. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word and, and lead us. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for these truths. And we need these truths. We need You. You are a God of infinite love but you're good and holy. And so you're a God who practices tough love and you call us to the same. And we need it, Lord, at different times. We need to learn about how to practice it. We need to learn how 
uh, to experience it and to, to respond to it rightly. And Lord, I know that we're in a room full of people. There's all sorts of stuff going on, and you know every little detail. I pray through this time and looking at your word that each one here would hear from you. They would hear your truth, and they would hear from you your encouragement and, the, and receive from you the faith to believe and to obey your word, knowing that it's good and right. So bless the reading and the hearing and all that we endeavor to do now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not, be, may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. God's Word from first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1-10. through 10. So we're going to look at this section and, and divide it into two sections. Talk about two main things. Uh, understanding that we are called to this sort of tough love. Uh, we're going to learn about tough love here as we watch Paul practice it. And it's not in the Word just so we can study Paul doing it. It's so we can apply it to our own lives. So we're going to divide it up into two, uh, two main points. One is that uh, tough love exposes persistent phoniness, first point. Second point will be that tough love sacrificially promotes the genuine success of others. So first, tough love exposes persistent phoniness, or just if you want to write a short title, persistent phoniness, verses 1 through 5. Paul is finishing the letter up here in chapter 13, verse 1, and he's anticipating his visit to Corinth. This is, will be the third time he comes to Corinth, third time he's visited him. He's known these guys for years. It's about six years, maybe seven total. Uh, he's, he started the church with his team, actually by himself initially, then with his team uh, six or so years ago. The church grew, then he was away for a while, and then he came back in the area. He's been interacting with them at length. Uh, so he's known them for a while, and he's coming for this, what will be a, his final visit to Corinth, from what we know. Uh, he's written at length to them. There are our four letters we know of. Two that are Scripture, two that aren't. They're not in the Bible. Uh, he's written them at length about different issues. And if you look, read through all that he's written, there's so much encouragement. There's so much to celebrate in Corinth, so much that he's grateful for, and he's really strong in emphasizing the grace of God as he sees it in Corinth. But there have been some very serious and persistent problems in this church, and we've been discovering that. Um, it doesn't mean that everybody in the church is doing wrong, but there are enough people doing 
uh, serious enough things that's really affecting things. And so, as Paul is anticipating his third visit, he's coming to do something about it. He's, in a sense, rolling his sleeves up as he prepares to go to Corinth. He says, this is is the third time I'm coming to you. Then he quotes from Deuteronomy, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's a protocol in Scripture that you don't just run off and accuse someone. You need two or three witnesses. And so Paul's saying, this is my third visit to you, and this will be the third witness. Basically, we'll decide things here. We'll deal with things here in this visit. He's been very gracious and... He's also caring about them, loving them enough, though, that he's going to do something about it. And they are perhaps mistaken about Paul, and we might be mistaken as well about Paul, because we've been reading in this book, right, about weakness. And Paul really wants people to know that he's weak, and that he's strong in the Lord, that he needs the Lord, that he in and of himself can do nothing, right? He says that. I am nothing. I can do nothing. He is very honest in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, saying, you know, we despaired of life itself. So we, we struggled so, so much, it was so dark for us that we basically felt like death and wanted to die. That's what we felt like. So he's been very transparent, very open, and very honest about his weaknesses and limitations. And they might mistake that to mean that, well, he's just you know, a wimp. He's just a spiritual wimp and so forth. You know, and Don't worry, do what you want. But he's basically saying, guys, that's not the case because that's not how it works. God's, the weakness that we have when we're in the Lord doesn't keep us from operating power as He calls us. Weakness positions us to depend on Him for His power. And then we walk in that power as He grants it to us. And it might be from a place of weakness. It might be from a place of physical sickness and so forth. But there's real power. We have this, this treasure in jars of clay, right? But we have a treasure. We have the glory of God. He lives in us. And He dwells amongst us as a church. And so we might be weak, and we want to be honest with our weakness. We want to tell the whole story, as I talked about last week. But let's tell the whole story, because an important part of the story is God is powerful in our lives. And Paul wants them to understand this. He wants them to see that these things go together. They are mistaken if they think that somehow if you're weak, it means you have no power or authority to act. We need to hear this. I think we need to hear this because perhaps appreciating what's been said in Second uh, Corinthians 13 so far, and it's really important to emphasize this reality of weakness, honest with ourselves and our need, and that God meets us in that. That's all important stuff, but we can let the pendulum swing kind of the other way. And I think our culture kind of enforces that. And we have to be aware of that. Kind of the way things have happened in our culture for different reasons. Um, I, I can't explain it all, but, but there was a time when, when those in authority were respected and they basically were given leeway to do things. And then I think in our culture, there was a rebellion against probably harsh, even legalistic authority. It was question, you know, the bumper sticker question authority. And, it, and the pendulum kind of swung to the other side to say, well, what the chief virtue needs to be is what we all need to be is tolerant and, and kind. And, and, and so the idea of like being weak and meek is, is appealing, but it but there's more to the story. And we need to be careful that we don't swing the pendulum that it's all about weakness and we never do what we're called to do. We never act in the ways that God authorizes us to act and empowers us to act. Weakness doesn't mean no power. 
Weakness means a power that's under the Lord, dependent on the Lord, not ourselves. Not our own power, but it is power. And that's what Paul's getting at with them. He wants them to understand that. There's this reality that he can come with authority and with power to take care of these issues. He's been patient. He's been gracious. He, it's been years. It's been hundreds and hundreds of words of encouragement. And yet, because they're refusing in the long run, he will have to act unless there's change. Paul is weak, but he's strong in Jesus. And these are not idle threats. Uh, we know we can see that. We can see elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 5, earlier on actually, in dealing with something that was so, so destructive, it had to be dealt with right away. It wouldn't have been right for Paul to wait. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, he's dealing with a situation where there's a man in the church who's, who's sleeping with his aunt. Um, and, and so he's with his aunt, and the church thinks it's okay. And Paul's like, no, you've got to do something about that. And he calls them to action. And, and if you read that chapter, it's actually kind of shocking because he says, uh, when you're gathered together, you need to decide on this, and you need to turn this man over to Satan. That's no weak thing going on there. We don't know all that that means, but it's a spiritual act, basically saying the church needs to put the guy out of the church and hand him over to Satan. Because if he wants to dabble in those things, then let him have the whole deal. And let him see where it leads him. That's the idea. And it likely is that this man, in being turned over in church discipline, was subject to spiritual attack, probably physical sickness. And the intent there was not to be mean to him. It was to get him to realize how foolish his decisions were and to realize the consequences, the implications of what he did, so that he would turn back. And, and it looks like, as we read through uh, Corinthians, that it worked, that he turned back. So that's the sort of stuff Paul's talking about. He's not, he's, he's not a guy that won't act or won't call others to act. And in Acts chapter 13, we've mentioned this, he calls down blindness on this guy, this, this man who is opposing him and the Gospel. We see tough love in Scripture. We must not mistake that. Tough love has, uh, scripture has lots to say about tough love. We're, uh, early on in, in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira are persistently phony, right? That's, that's what we're talking about. Tough love exposes persistent phoniness. They are persistently phony, and they try to fool the church that they are very generous when they're, when they're lying. Nothing wrong with holding the money back, but they lied about it, and they, they were putting forth this phoniness, and Peter calls them in, and God basically kills them on the spot. That's in Scripture. And we don't necessarily like that. We want, you know, the kind, gentle Christianity. And yes, Christianity should be full of kindness and gentleness and patience. But it's also full of power. Our God is good. That means He's patient, He's gracious, but He's holy. And He will act. And He has the right to do these things. He made everything. He made us all. We are accountable to Him. Now, we don't like that. And our culture doesn't like that. But that's, that's the truth in Scripture behind what Paul's doing here. And it's so important for us to get this. And you can just look throughout Scripture, you'll find many instances of these sorts of things. I, I remember a time in my life hearing a message on Eli and his sons. And it scared, it scared me. It scared the hell out of me, basically. Because <laughs> I realized that you know, God is holy. And so Eli, if you know the story... Eli was the high priest, and he was a man who seemed to follow God, but his sons had walked, had gone off the rails. And they were meant to be priests themselves. And instead of doing their duties and honoring the Lord and leading the people, they were having sex in the, in the tabernacle. And they were stealing the sacrifice. And, and the problem with Eli is he didn't do anything about it. It wasn't that Eli was doing any of those things, but Eli 
let it happen and didn't deal with it. And God brought judgment on Eli. The sons were killed. Eli was killed. There was a whole bunch of circumstances God brought to bear. And I remember hearing that message and just realizing, I don't want to play games with God. I don't want to try to get away with things and find myself like Eli someday. The Scripture is full of these things. And, and, it, and, and uh, I, you know, I can't say for sure, but I have stories personally I know of, of people being dealt with this way. I know of a church where there was a man in the church who seemed to have lots of gifts and he was becoming prominent and he was actually dividing the church because he was presenting a better gospel, so, so to speak, around certain doctrines that actually were right doctrines. But the way he was doing it, he was divisive. And he was destroying the church. And I, I know this firsthand from a firsthand source. And so the elders of the church fasted and prayed that God would do something because they realized that if they just kind of, you know, they didn't have things to say, but they were just like, this isn't right. There's something fishy here. They fasted and prayed two, two sessions of 30 days each. And at the end of the second 30-day session, a terrible tragedy happened to the divisive man's family. His son was killed in an accident. Not that my friends prayed for anything like that. But in the process of grieving and dealing with that, it came out that this man had been living a terrible, deceptive life. He had been sleeping around multiple affairs all the while while he was saying, I'm leading the church in this new, better doctrine, this new, better gospel. God exposed it all. At what a price. I want us to understand, guys, that this is who the Lord is. He is gracious. He is patient. But He knows everything and He's holy. And He will deal. He will deal out tough love. He will discipline His church. He will deal with us. And we mustn't mistake weakness for ineffectiveness. And so Paul talks about what he's going to do and he talks about Christ, right? He says in verse 4, For He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So Christ Himself is the ultimate example. Utter weakness. Christ went to the cross, became bigger than anybody, lower than anybody. Went to the cross and bore our sins on the cross. He went to the cross in His love for us because apart from Him, we are lost. Apart from Him, we're not acceptable to a good God. Again, it's not because God's mean. He's good. And if we're honest with ourselves and we look into our own hearts and the sorts of things that go through our own minds and we evaluate that against standard that God gives us, loving God with everything we have, loving others, as we love ourselves, loving like Jesus did, that's the standard. If we're honest, none of us, none of us come close. We've shared this in Alpha. I've shared this, this uh, illustration before. I think it's helpful. Uh, if next week we could somehow put, project on the screen here all the things that you thought during the week. We could put a little chip in your brain, collect everything that had gone through your mind, and then next Sunday we're going to gather here and we're going to watch what Pastor Paul's been thinking all week long. I would not be here during that time. And that's the reality. We are, we are desperately needy for someone to rescue us from our foolishness and our sin. And, and the good news is that God loves us and sent His Son for us. Sent His Son to bear the, the right and just penalty for all those sins. and All the ones that you're not even aware of. On the cross. He went to that cross. He died. He took the just punishment, the, the holy wrath of God on Himself on the cross and died. He he, he died. He gave up his life. He was buried. He shed his blood. He paid for all of those sins for everybody who comes to him. All of your sins are paid for on that cross. Should you come to him in faith? And, and just to know, that's really important to know, 
The Bible doesn't say you have to do this and this and this. It's not like the movie The Mission where he has to climb the cliff with the burden on his back. You don't have to do anything like that. You just simply need to look to Jesus. Look away from yourself, look away from sin, and look to Jesus. Trust Him. And in that interaction of faith, there's something powerful that goes on that connects you to Him in such a way that all your sins are credited to Him and His righteous life now is credited to you. When God looks at you, He sees Jesus. And you are clean and forgiven in Him. He did that on the cross. He died. That's ultimate weakness. He lowered Himself lower than us. The ultimate, ultimately weak place He went to. But then on the third day, He rose again. Victorious over sin and death. And He ascended to the Father. He's reigning now. He's going to finish His reign. He reigns and lives now in power. And when we trust in Him, though we are weak and though we must die to our sins with Him, we are also raised to new life with Him. And we have power. And we walk in that power. And He meets us and His grace is sufficient for us. And so Paul points to this to say to the Corinthians, don't get me wrong in this weakness stuff. But He is mighty through us. And He's mighty in your midst, Corinthians. It's important to understand that. It's important to understand who He is. It's important to see all of Scripture. and How He is portrayed. How God is portrayed. And what we're called to in light of that. And we certainly want to emphasize all of Scripture. We don't want to diminish in any way His amazing mercy and grace. Because the, the offer, the work of the Gospel, the, the, His death on the cross and His simple um, terms of just turn and trust are full of mercy and grace, aren't they? And, and no matter how far you wander and how close you are to, to judgment, all you need to do is turn and trust and He receives you gladly. That's who He is. We never want to diminish that. He's a God of infinite grace. Glorious grace. He's a God of infinite love. So we, we never want to diminish that, but we, but we never want to mistake that to say it doesn't matter what you do. And he doesn't, doesn't really care. He's just like a senile grandparent who's just handing out lollipops. No, he knows what's going on. And he loves you enough to deal with it. These must go together. And so we see in Scripture descriptions of Jesus as amazingly merciful. He is the Good Shepherd. But then Revelation chapter 1, right? We have this to project. This describes Jesus. This sort of description should fit alongside our other readings of Christ. It says the hairs of His head were white, looking at Jesus, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And His voice was like the roar of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. That's Jesus. That's our Jesus. Paul knows this, and he wants the Corinthians to know it, and he wants the Corinthians to be sober about their Christian lives. Certainly, he does want them to understand grace, but to understand the call of God to be formed into the image of Christ. The call of God to keep our eyes on Him and not get off the path and wander away and think it doesn't matter. And so he says to them, examine yourselves, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And then he says, test yourselves. It's interesting, two different words in English, two different words in the original language. They're slightly different. The first one, examine yourselves, basically means, means look to see what you're made of. Look to see what you're made of. 
take a, an honest look, whether you are in the faith. Are you made of the stuff that's produced by faith? And then he says, test yourselves. And that word may be translated also, certify yourselves. So, so certify yourselves. So it's ex expectation of a positive test, passing the test. Or do you not realize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you did, indeed you fail to meet the, the certification, the test? So that's what Paul's saying is, in light of this, guys, take an honest look at yourself and seek to certify yourself. So Paul wants them to pass the test. He's not like, oh, I can't wait to deal with the first one who didn't pass the test. No, test yourself so that you can be sure. And if not, you deal with it. He doesn't want to come and have to, to bring discipline. He wants to come and bring encouragement. He wants people to do the work of examining themselves ahead of time, testing themselves ahead of, ahead of time, certifying themselves ahead of time and running back to Jesus and turning from those things. That's what he wants to happen. It's important to, to examine ourselves, to certify ourselves. Well, I think it's also important to understand, well, what, how do you do that, right? I mean, what is it? how do you do the certification? What does it look like? How do we measure ourselves, right? It's important to know what to test, what to examine. Right? If you bring your car in for a car inspection um, and the mechanic like, says, oh, you know, I want to get in and see how comfy your seats are, you know, oh, nice comfy seats, and let, I guess look at your your reflections. Nice channels. I like your channels. You know, and and uh, and then like looks under the seat. Are there any crumbs under here? You know, you'd be like, what are you doing? This is a car inspection. You're supposed to like test the horn, the brakes, and the engine, and all that stuff. You know, it's important to know what has to be tested for us as Christians. I think it's important for us to know what is it. How do you test test yourself? How do you examine yourself? And 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 Scripture holds this standard. It's your fruits. That's how you know. The fruit of your life. Does your life point to Jesus? Now, certainly, do you believe the core truths of Jesus? Do you believe that He died for sins? That He's God in the flesh? And that through faith in Him, you are forgiven and given eternal life? Do you believe that? And then, does your life show it? Is there fruit on the tree? Jesus uses that metaphor of a tree. And You know a tree by its fruit. You know an apple tree by its fruit. Now, don't misunderstand this because some apple trees are amazing, right? They're huge. They're, they've got like a hundred apples on every branch, right? They're bending over with these beautiful apples. You go up to eat those apples, they're the best you've ever had, right? But then there are other apple trees. I've had apple trees like this. They're barely producing anything. Little tiny mini apples. Have you ever had an apple tree like that with mini apples? And then there's like all these, uh, you know, little thorns, like little branches that are like thorns that are, that are all over the tree and there's hardly any, any apples on the tree. But there are a couple apples. Are they both apple trees? Yeah. And that's, that's what, how you test yourself. Is there fruit that points to the reality of your life? It's not how much fruit you have. It's not like, my life is only fruit. And if we're honest, I think, you know, I, I, I don't think there's anybody that's like one of those apple trees with 100 apples on them. I don't. I think we're all more like the scraggly apple tree, to be honest. But there are apples there. And the apples point to the reality of Christ being inside of us. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Like, guys, you look at yourselves. You need to examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Are there apple trees? Or has this whole thing just been in one ear for the past six years? That's what he wants them to do. He wants them to be ready when he comes to examine themselves and be prepared and to run to grace. So what do we do with this first part? What are some application points? I think it's important to think through this. Well, first, go slow. Because I think you can hear a message like that and be like, yeah. Maybe it's for yourself. 
I don't know if I'm a believer because I, I don't love Jesus enough. I don't pray enough. Slow down. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, my friend or my child. Not enough fruit. So slow down. This has been six years. Paul's been dealing with them through a lot of stuff. He's been encouraging them. He's pointing out grace. So it's after a long time he's finally realizing, I mean, generally speaking, because he's actually speaking to the whole church when he says this. I'm going to deal with the ones that are obviously troubled, but everyone else, you all need to examine yourselves. So slow down. And don't assume right away. Learn and listen. That's important to get. Secondly, understand that there are instances where someone's behavior is so dangerous we have to act right away. We don't slow down. Really destructive, spiritual, spiritually destructive behavior we are to deal with quickly. He does that earlier in 1 Corinthians 5. So, so uh, serious destructive sins, unfaithfulness in marriage, um, unrepentant fornication, things like that. So things that are going to destroy someone's life and others' lives and ruin the reputation of, of Christ and His church, we must act quickly on And we're committed to that as a church, by the way. And we all need to be committed to that as well. So uh, it's not loving to cover up those sins. Now, it's not loving to gossip about them either. I'm not saying that. But go to the source quickly. Talk to the person right away. Be there for them right away. And if they don't respond right away, get help from someone you can trust. And if that doesn't produce change, then right away get a pastor involved. Um, So there are those cases. Thirdly, though, uh, so given the other cases that aren't destructive, but they're serious enough, right? So they, like we see early persistent gossip and strife and things like that. Paul lists those things at the end of chapter 12. These other uh, sins that are still serious but not as immediately destructive. There will be a time when you need to address them. And don't be afraid to do that. Act in time to address those things. Ignoring will not make it better. Tough love means... Doing, taking action and letting God take care of the results, like in the opening story. Sometimes you have to fire the guy. Sometimes you have to do something. So just those are three application points. The second point, tough love sacrificially promotes genuine success. This is important to understand. In the latter part of this section, we see Paul's hearts. Verses 6-10, through 10, he says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Paul's saying, guys, uh, I hope that you see as you examine yourself that we've actually been for you. And we've been representing Christ well to you. And following our lead is actually important instead of those other guys, those other leaders who are leading you astray and leading you into this situation where now you have to be examined this way. We hope you get it. But you know what? That's not what we're after. And we think that we know there's benefit in getting it, but ultimately we're after you. We want to make sure that you're doing right and you're succeeding. And we don't care. It's, it's really interesting. He says, um, not, uh, though we may have seemed to have failed at the end of verse 7. He's saying, you know what? Ultimately, you can hate me <laughs> if you want. Because I don't, I mean, I want you to love me, but, but that's not what I'm after. I'm not after you thinking highly of me. I would do anything. To see you do well. I would sacrifice my life to see you do well. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's been doing, by the way, right? If we heard his storyline earlier in uh, chapter 12, all these things he went through, chapter 11, chapter 12, why did he do it? Because he loved God first and he loved others. He loved the Corinthians. He was willing to 
to go through these crazy things, shipwrecks, being beaten, stoned, uh, adrift at sea, all this stuff. He, remember he talked about his anxiety for the churches? Even with all these things, he's anxious whenever someone in the church is doing badly. He does badly. He and his whole team are this way. And so he's saying, guys, it, it's, it's not about us. It's about you. We love you and we want to see you do well. We want to see you doing what's right. He says in verse 9, For we are glad when we are weak and you're strong. We're, we're fine when we're perceived as weak and you think we're just weaklings. As long as you're strong. As long as you're doing well. And then he says, your restoration is what we pray for. That word restoration in some translations is translated uh, completion or perfection or maturity. And it's a word that means basically setting things right. It's the idea of something that's not set right, that's off, being set right. Something that is, is corrupted, being made Right, and in and, and its proper place. It's complete. It's finished. It's what it ought to be. It's success, really. Spiritual success. So he says, that's what we're after. We're after your restoration. We're after your maturity. We're after your completion. We want you to be doing well. We want you to live in all that you have in Jesus. We want to live, you to live out what forgiveness produces in lives. It produces this new love for God and new love for people. It produces a distaste for the evil of the world and the deception of sin. It produces lives that look like Jesus, both individually and as a whole church. That's what we're after. That's what Paul's saying. And he's modeled that. He's, modeled, he's shown them this in, in his life. He's shown them that he is, is like, a, like a military medic on the battlefield. He'll lay his life down for their good. And they may not like it. A you know, medic has to go in and do things to rescue soldiers that hurt them, and they're not necessarily happy. He's got to stick his hand in that wound to, to stop the flow of blood. He may have to come under gunfire. And it just thought, I thought of the illustration of the hero of Hacksaw Ridge, Desmond Doss. I don't know if you've heard of Desmond Doss. From World War II, he was a devout Christian. He joined the army. He was, uh, he was a conscientious objector. So he didn't want to shoot anybody, didn't want to kill anybody. And he thought that he wouldn't be required to carry a weapon, and he actually refused to carry a weapon. And they put him in an uh, infantry regiment, a rifle company. Rifle companies carry rifles. And he faced all sorts of harassment because um, he wouldn't carry one. They harassed him. They threatened him. One of the guys said, Doss, as soon as we get into combat, I'll make sure you won't come back alive. His commanding officer uh, put pressure on him to get him to quit, to intimidate him. They, uh, brought, they gave him extra tough duties. They declared him mentally unfit. They court-martialed him. But he hung tough. And he refused to carry a weapon. And he was able to stay in the unit. And he was hated for it. But he, he loved those guys and he did his job. And he was a fantastic medic. And over time, throughout the course of the, of the campaigns, he became to be a, a well-loved part of the unit. And in May 1945, his division was trying to capture the Maida Escarpment on Okinawa. It's this imposing rock face they called Hacksaw Ridge. And they had secured the top of the cliff, and there was a counterattack, a vicious counterattack, and so they were ordered to retreat. And, and the whole uh, company and, and, uh, got down, went to get off the cliff. Only one-third made it out without being wounded or killed. 
And Desmond actually disobeyed the order to evacuate. He stayed there under fire in the midst of the enemy, rescuing wounded men. He did it, I think it was three days, lowering guys down over the, the cliff. He saved 75 lives. Several days later, during a night raid, he was severely wounded. He was in a shell hole, and a Japanese grenade landed. It, it blew him out of the hole. And then um, when he was trying to treat the wounds of others, as a wounded person himself, he was hit by a sniper's bullet in the arm, and yet he refused to be taken out until others were evacuated. <clears throat> if he made it out, he would have died um, for the good of his unit. For his actions, Desmond was given the highest medal uh, in the military, the Medal of Honor. At the 100th anniversary of the Medal of Honor, when they celebrated that in 18, 1962, guess who was chosen to meet the president? Desmond Doss. He exemplified tough love. Tough love risks comfort and even life to see others be successful. And that's what Paul is talking about. That's who Paul and his team are here in this section. They are laying their lives down for these people in Corinth. It's not about them. It's about the people. It's about them doing well. And it's so important to understand how tough love works in Scripture. It, it, it indeed exposes persistent phoniness, but it sacrifices for the good of others. It does what's necessary to promote the maturity of others. They go together. These things go together. And weakness and strength in the Lord go together. Tough love is sacrificial, but not passive. It's humble, but bold. It's loving, but truthful. It's oriented towards men, but it's oriented first towards God. It's what the church must be like. It's what Jesus is like. And it's what we're called to walk in this tough love. We will face opposition in this world, by the way, if we practice this. The world doesn't want true tough love. Generally, our culture wants toleration at all costs. Toleration that may not have a backbone. But Christian toleration is different. It is 